Amen. Isn't it good to be in the presence of the Lord where you just know he's here, you know he's attentive, you know that he has everything in control. Thank you, Tom and Jackie, for doing such a good job again, as you always do. I hope you guys have a good Thanksgiving. You know, it's coming up, isn't it? Yeah, we have a lot to be thankful for, don't we? We sure do. So today, um, we are still studying the book of Philippians. And last week, we talked about God's abounding love towards us. And today, um, I'm going to go back and uh, go back to the prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians. And I want to talk about that some more this week. Um, but sometimes I have a hard time titling messages. Sometimes I don't. This one I've struggled with a little bit. But the reality is that I believe that we move from an area of idealisticness to an area of realisticness in our life. And I want to talk about that. Last week, I ended the sermon yes, last week, actually, by thinking, by saying that it seems that many messages that pastors give or Bible teachers give, they appear to be unrealistic. They appear to be idealistic in the fact that there's such high ideals that no one can live up to them. And so it becomes a rhetorical message in many ways to some people. And so people will listen to messages or sermons and they'll say, oh, that was really good, but they don't find any way to apply it or the desire not to apply it because it appeared to be too idealistic. And I want to talk about today. Today, I want to talk about the life of Christ. Do you think that to live a Christ-like life is too idealistic to live? To live a life that pleases Christ, is it too idealistic? Is it above our reach? The Bible declares some pretty incredibly hard things for us to comprehend, let alone apply in our lives on a daily basis. I totally get that. When you read and study the Bible and read what the Bible says about how we should live a Christian life, it can appear to be very idealistic. But we have to recognize that it is the Word of God. No matter what we think about it, it is the Word of God, and it is the standard of which we teach about, and it is the standard of which God expects us to attain, live towards. So we need to take the approach as we read the Bible or listen to Bible messages that God is looking for a heart of application that is seeking the power of the Holy Spirit to help us apply what we're, what we're hearing and learning about. But let me take some heat off you up front. Right now, I want to let you know, first of all, that it is impossible. It is impossible for you or I to live a life pleasing to God on our own ability. I can't live a life pleasing to the Lord because I'm such a good person. No matter how good I try to be, I will not please the Lord in my own ability. So don't think you can either. And that's not the point. The point is, the only way we can even begin to live a life that is accepting to Christ is when we make Him our Savior. When we ask Him to forgive us of our sins and we repent of our shortcomings and we ask Him to cover our life with the blood of Christ, 
and we take his payment of our sins to give us a freedom to live a life according to the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us, that in our failings, God still sees the righteousness of Christ because he sees the blood of Christ on our life. So the only way that we can live a life attaining to Christ's godliness is to accept Jesus Christ in our heart. If he does not in your heart, then you're never going to do it. So don't don't think you can. But that's why the Bible says something that's very important for us to realize. It says that in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says the message of the cross, the message of salvation, what we what we preach here is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. In other words, for those people in the world, the message of the cross doesn't make any sense. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. So as you have that revelation knowledge of Jesus Christ being becoming your Savior, all of a sudden the Bible means something more to you because it's not you, it's Jesus in you, the Holy Spirit in you that's bringing the Bible alive. That's why... If people struggle with reading the Bible, it's probably because they don't have a good relationship with Jesus. But they can grow towards it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're talking today about how we move from an idealistic to a realistic attitude in how we live our daily life. And that we are to work out our salvation, as Paul instructs us in the second chapter of this book we're studying, that Paul tells us that we are we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks to come when we get to chapter 2 of Philippians. But that's just a precursor that God is asking us, requiring of us, that we are to work out our salvation even as Jesus forgives us of our sins. We have responsibilities to work out our salvation. And I'll explain that. That's not working for your salvation. Understand that. We're not doing anything to become saved other than accepting Jesus. But once we get saved, now we have to continue to work out our salvation. And we'll get to that later. But let me ask you a question that will help us to think about how important what I'm talking about is. At the life, at at your life's end, when you're when you're dead, how do you want people to think about you? What do you want your legacy to be? This is not a trivial question. This is a question that needs to be thought about. And it needs to be thought about now while we're still alive. How do you want people to remember you? Do you ever think about that? I don't mean to, I don't mean in a morbid situation. I, I mean in a in a in a motivational way. How do you think about it? How often do you think about it? Assuming that you live to a ripe old age and you become a grandfather or a grandmother, how do you want your children and your grandchildren? to remember you 
What memories do you want to instill in their mind in the times that they shared with you? Are there some things in your life that you don't want them to remember? Are you concerned with what they believe about your eternity, where you are? When they come to your funeral or they think about you, they drive by your cemetery or whatever, do they, are, do you want them to be concerned about where you are at that point in time? I mean, think about things like, as a dad, were you a good provider? Um, were you a good dad? Were you, were you a fun grandparent? Did you give them many happy times in their life? Did you leave them with a good inheritance? Were you a good teacher? Did your actions line up with your words? Did they see you set goals in your life and then work towards them, whether they're idealistic or realistic? Did they see you working towards goals in your life? And this may be the granddaddy of all the questions. Do you want them to end up being like you? Do you want them to end up to be like you? Boy, I know these are some heavy questions. But these are so important for us to think about now while we have the opportunity to make a difference. Let me ask you one more question. Are you a person that sets goals in your life and then works towards them? Some people are. Some people are very goal-oriented, and some are not so much. Now, whether you are intentionally or not, the reality is we all set goals of some level, which we realize or not realize we're doing that. But the reality is, no matter what level of goal setter you are, there will come a time where you will come to the end of your life and your goals will either be met or unmet. So let me ask you this question. How important is it to you to be happy about the end result when that time comes? How important is it for you to be happy about the end result? Does it make a difference? Are you concerned about that? Think about that as we continue to work through this Bible teaching about how God gives us his standards of holiness that are somewhat unattainable, but yet we're expected to work towards them. So let me go back to the point I made about being idealistic sermons or not. Are idealistic sermons worthwhile to listen to? First of all, do you see what I'm talking about? Do you understand that sometimes we can listen to a message that becomes so holy based, so holy and high lofty that it's like it's, it's too much? Uh, I can see it because I think I've preached some. <laughs> um, but no matter how godly the goal may be to please God, even though if it seems idealistic and seems unreachable, that some people will never, ever start because they think it's not worth it. So they, ha- they, they develop their own mentality, their own religion, if you will, and, and they develop a life mindset that says that everything will work out the way it's supposed to in the end, so I'm not going to worry about it now. I'm just going to live a good person's life. I'm just going to be a good person. I'm going to be better than the guy down the street. I'm just going to live a good life, and I'm going to let God deal with me at the end because, you know what, he loves me so much, he's not going to send me to hell. 
And that's the way some people live their life. Not realizing that that's not a good way to think about your end. Let me give you a suggestion about how we should deal with idealistic ideals and idealistic messages that seem out of our reach. They may be. They may be in their own right. But the reality is, if we don't set a goal, no matter how low or high it is, if we don't set one, then we'll never achieve one. If I don't ever set a goal, then I'll guarantee you're not gonna you're not gonna make it. You're not gonna match it. So we have to say this. Let me say it another way. Rarely, if ever, does anything good happen by accident. Think about this with me with me a little bit. Rarely, if ever, does anything good happen by accident. You know, I know that God has a way to make good things out of bad things. The Bible says that. I get that. But given man's natural character that we have, and we have to recognize that we come up in life, we are born with a sinful character, a sin nature, that unless an intentional effort is made to alter that, we will die with a sin nature. I'm not talking about just I'm going to live a good life and I'm going to overcome my sin by my good deeds. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a supernatural, born-again relationship with Christ. That unless that happens in every person's life, that person will enter life a sinful person at birth because of Adam and Eve, because of the sin nature that they had, and they will end their life with a sin nature unless somewhere in that time frame they make that supernatural transaction to give up life to gain, to give up death to gain life through Jesus Christ. Let me say it this way. No one becomes a Christian by accident or by living a good life. You don't fall into Christianity. It takes an intentional choice, an intentional decision to make of a person to say, I am going to become a Christian. I am going to change from what I was to be something new. It takes a supernatural event that requires an intentional decision on one's part to defeat the sin nature in a, in a person's life and to live a new, godly, holy nature that doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen without a conscious and deliberate choice. And this requires an intentional effort on our part. I know this is the idealistic part. Are you listening? Are you understanding this? It takes an intentional part in this idealistic world. Let me, let me give you an example that maybe how we can relate with. Parents here, um, how did your child learn to ride a bike? Do you remember those days when you were teaching your children how to ride bicycles? You went out. First of all, you had to get them a bike. So you went out. Got him a brand new bike or a used bike or whatever you had, and and you brought it home and you put it in the garage, and and your son or daughter, you know, they were excited to see the new bike, and so they sat out there in the garage looking at the bike and getting excited about it and thinking about all the fun they were going to have riding that bike. But until they purposely got on the bike and maybe used training wheels, that bike didn't do anything for them until they made the choice to take a risk to learn how to ride the bike. And there might have been some tumbles along the way 
maybe um, I can remember in Royal Oak living down there. We were by teaching uh, my daughter Aub- or, uh, Summer and Tyler, our oldest kids, how to ride a bike and running down Woodland, the name of the street, running behind them, holding on to the, the the seat, keeping it straight until they didn't know it, and I let go of the seat, and all of a sudden they're riding by themselves. And then they looked that I wasn't following, and then they wiped out because they realized I wasn't there. But you know, you, you teach them how to ride a bike, and it takes an effort. It took action on their part on how to learn to ride the bike. They didn't learn to ride the bike by accident, right? So anything good typically starts off with a goal. I'm going to learn how to ride the bike. I'm going to learn how to be a follower of Christ. I'm going to give up my life of sin, and I'm going to make a transaction with Jesus to become a Christian person. It doesn't happen by accident. That's just an example how the accomplishments in life require intentional goals and then apply to actions for anything good to happen. So are you with me so far? Have I lost anybody? So what does this have to do with the book of Philippians? <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this this week, and I'm putting this message together, and, um, you know, I realized how much work it takes, how much effort it takes for me to put a sermon together. I have to sit down, and I have to think about it, and, you know, I can have the words floating in my mind. In fact, sometimes at night I'll have these things come across at night and, and I think, okay, God, let me remember that so in the morning I can write that down. Well, if I don't get up and write it down in a night, I forget it. It takes work to put something on paper. And I have to intentionally put my mind to say, okay, I'm going to study and I'm going to put this on paper so that on Sunday I can give a good message or the best that I can give message, right? And so it, it, it takes an intentional effort for me to pray and to meditate on God's word and to seek his wisdom and then put the effort into putting my thoughts on paper before a Sunday morning. And that's just the way we live life. If we don't put an intentional effort on our activities, then we find ourselves running by the seat of our pants all the time. And probably if that happens, not a lot of good things happen. Running by the seat of our pants means that we're running by our sinful character in our life. And like I said, many times good things don't happen by accident. So that takes you to the prayer. The prayer that we're reading today is Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And, and I, I, as I was studying for this, I, I love the prayers of the Bible because they are so deep and they're so meaningful. So I want to just take this couple verses here and I want to study it today with us. So Philippians chapter 1. Verse 9 through 11, this is the prayer that Paul prayed for the church in Philippi. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Sounds pretty idealistic, doesn't it? Let's read it again. I'm going to read it really slow. Listen to the words. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So when we read that prayer, what are some of the words that stand out? And this is my prayer, 
that your love may abound more and more. That your love may abound more. And what does that mean? That we're growing. Our love would abound more and more. In other words, we're not just stagnant in how I loved Christ first or what I'm doing. It's, there is a growth aspect in my life. It's abounding more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Knowledge and depth of insight. Do you want to be a shallow person? Or do you want to be a deep person? Do you want knowledge to abound in your life? Do you want to be, not that you can be a braggart about it, but you can have the wisdom of God, supernatural wisdom, that you can have an insight that helps you get through some of the hard things in life, that your knowledge and depth of insight would grow, that I would become more godly. So that you may be able to discern what is best. Discerning what is best. There's a lot of things in life we can do that are mediocre. But do you want the best in your life? Do you want to be the best you can be? Or are you comfortable being mediocre? Are you comfortable being at the bottom of the barrel? And again, I'm not saying this egotistically. I'm just saying this for yourself. Do you want to be the best person you can be? Not better than me, not better than the guy next door. I'm talking about you and me. Do I want to be the best I can be? Yeah. Well, then how do I do it? I have to have discernment so that I can know what I need to do to be the best I can be. That I may be pure and blameless. Wow. Idealistic words. Pure and blameless. What does this mean? This means that I don't create an offense to God or to another person. Pure and blameless. Until the day of Christ. What is that? The rapture or my death. I want to live. I want to abound in love. I want to abound more and more in knowledge and insight. I want to have more depth of, uh, of being insight so that I can discern what is the best for me. I want to be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. Think about this. What is fruit? Fruit is something people can see. It's something that people can eat. An apple tree makes apples. Fruit is something that we bear. People can see our righteousness. They can see the goodness in me. We sang about the goodness of God. That comes through me as I'm living a godly life. Then God's goodness comes through me as fruit that people can see and they can, they can feed off of me. I love that part. And that comes through Christ Jesus. So what I encourage you to do is Go back to a prayer like this or any other prayers that we prayed and memorize the prayer. Memorize two or three verses, whatever it is, and then repeat it day after day after day and let the Holy Spirit bring out different phrases or different words in that prayer that will make it alive to you and will you'll think about it differently. I promise you, when you do that, the Holy Spirit will bring different phrases out at different times and think, oh, I didn't think of that. Oh, that's really good. How am going to use that? I mean, really, really good. So um, I encourage you to do that. So let me ask you this. What do you see here as a common theme? And what we've just been praying about, what is a common theme of this prayer? 
Well, a common theme here is that there is a continual and intentional desire to grow. To grow. To move into our depth of insight and knowledge of God. That there is, there is something within me that wants to get to know God more and more and more. I want to be more like Christ. I want to know more about what Christ wants for me in my life. And this doesn't happen accidentally. It requires an intentional effort on my part that we have to choose to grow in our spiritual relationship with God every day. Even if it goes against our natural flesh. Because I will say, and I will agree, that there are many times I don't feel like reading the Bible. I don't feel like praying in the morning. But if I live by my feelings, then my feelings are going to take me on a roller coaster ride. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm going to have good days, bad days, and I'm going to be everywhere in between. But when I can say, I'm going to read, I'm going to pray, regardless of what my feelings say, that's making that intentional choice to grow in the knowledge and and depth of insight of what God wants me to be. That's allowing me to, to be the best I can be. Life is made up of daily choices. And everything that results in our life is a product of those choices, without exception. Everything that happens in my life is a product of my choices. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. This is a, a, good mem- a good scripture to remember. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Man, another idealistic scripture, isn't it? Reaping and sowing is a godly principle. It's a godly law that cannot be broken. A person will reap what they've sown. It may not be initially, it may not be right away, but like a garden, you plant the garden in the spring and it might take all summer long before you can get the harvest, but eventually, if you plant a corn kernel, you're going to get a corn stalk, you're not going to get a tomato plant. You're going to, you're going to reap what you've sown. And that's a spiritual principle in our life. Is this idealistic or realistic? We need to have an idealistic heart. Listen, we need to have an an idealistic heart up front so that in the end, we will end up with a realistic opportunity to hit the mark of pleasing God. Yes, some of these things are idealistic. And maybe in our own self, we'll never achieve them. But if I don't set the mark, I'll never have a realistic approach to ever achieving anything that pleases God. So don't throw out ideals because they're too difficult. If I don't place my standards of living on a, go- a godly life on the high standards of God's word, then I'll never have the chance of meeting any of God's standards. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice... Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. That's exactly what Paul is praying for to the Philippians, that we could set our heart's desire on everything that God does so that the Holy Spirit can give us the power 
to attain the holiness that God demands. We become a living sacrifice matching Jesus' death sacrifice. Think about that. He died so that we can live. So that our living sacrifice of our life matches his death sacrifice. We have to die to our flesh. Again, very idealistic. I get it. And I know that there's nothing that we can do on our own ability to live a life pleasing to the Lord or that we can qualify in the inheritance of the saints on our own. I know that. But that doesn't mean that we don't still have to make right choices in our life to be so. We have to, we have to be idealistic and die to ourselves as Jesus died realistically to himself. And how do we do this? We do this through the power of our choices. We do this on a daily basis. And let me explain a little bit more about the power of our choices. Boy, the power of choice, guys, is critical. Understand what I'm going to say here. We're told in the book of Genesis that we are made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what does that mean? Does that mean that God has uh, eyes and nose and ears and has a flesh image? No. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the fact that we're created in God's image in our spirit, our spiritual image. And the major difference in, a, in man's creation over anything else that God created is that mankind is being made in God's image means that that man, that person, you and I, we have the power that God gives us to make a moral choice. That we can make a choice based on morality. No matter where we live around the world, it's kind of known that it's wrong to kill somebody. It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to lie. All cultures have that. Whether they're taught about it or not, it's just naturally ingrained in people that there are some things that are just morally right and morally wrong. That is being in the made in the image of God, that we know what's right, we know what's wrong, and the moral issues. Now, we can, we can um, burn our conscience to the point that we don't see morality anymore, but yet that's the way we're built. And other animals don't have that. A dog or a cat, they're trained to do something. They have instincts and they're trained, but humans are the only ones that have the ability to make a moral choice. That's based on the morality of God. So based upon the fact that we're made in God's image, we not only know right from wrong, but we have the power to choose right or wrong. Does that make sense? And because of that, listen, this is really important. And based on that, based on our choices, that's why we can bear the rewards or the consequences of sin. That's why it's justifiable for me to go to hell if I don't choose Christ because I have the moral choice to either accept him or not. And if I don't accept him, then it's my choice to go to hell. 
God's not making that choice for me. It's my choice because I have the consequence of my moral decisions, my moral choices. That's the power that we have, the power of choice. And God gave that to us because that's the only way that we can prove that we love him is through our choices. Make sense? Is this, is this, hopeless is getting in because this is really important. Every guy, every man has the right to choose. And just because God wants every man to choose to love him, that doesn't mean they are unless they choose on their own. That's the righteous, that's the moral character that we have to do. We have to accept the gift of life for themselves. We come to the point of decision that we either have to reject Christ and do life our way, or, there's only two choices, or we accept Christ's gift of salvation as Savior. That's the gospel message right there. We either accept Christ or we reject Christ. And that's the first major choice that we must make. So let me ask you a question again. Is this too idealistic? Is the gospel too idealistic for us to live by? Was Jesus too idealistic in the fact that he died for us? But there's more. After one makes that initial choice to accept Jesus' free gift of salvation through the forgiveness of our sin, then one needs to make the second choice as to whether they are going to make Jesus Lord of their life or not. And this is how we maintain this. You see, the moment of salvation is the first day of the rest of, the rest of our choices to remain in Christ or not to remain in Christ. We have to make choices every day to I, I maintain. That's how we work out our salvation that we're, that we're going to talk about more later, that we're making choices every day to maintain this gift. The gift was free. Nothing I could do to earn it. But the reality is it's going to take everything that I have to maintain it. This is how we work out our salvation, with fear and trembling. And it goes back to Paul's prayer for the churches Paul is praying for those and for us, for us to continue to make the choices that would give Jesus true lordship of our daily lives because lordship denotes ownership. Lordship denotes or, or, or makes ownership. It determines who owns who. Once I accept the payment Jesus made for me and my sin, then I have to decide, am I going to give him ownership of my life? Oh, I hope this is making sense. This may be too idealistic, huh? Is it, too, is, it, is, it, is it too idealistic to think that I'm going to give God ownership of my life? I don't think so. Not according to what the Bible says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20, says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You see, Jesus died on the cross, and he paid the penalty for our sin. And by that, when I accept his payment, I'm not my own person anymore. If I'm truly a believer in Jesus, I now live for him because he bought me. He owns me in that way. That's not idealistic. That's just the facts. 
That's just the reality. And we need to know, are we going to accept that or not? If I'm going to make Jesus my Lord, what that means is that I'm giving up my rights of ownership of my choices. Now listen, this doesn't mean that I stop thinking. This doesn't mean that I stop using my mind. No, what this means is I have to be more attentive to my mind. I have to be more attentive to my choices. It actually means that I have to use my mind more wisely and ask the Holy Spirit to give me strength of character so that I live up to my ownership. I live up to the who, he who owns me. And it's not, it's not idealistic. It's the realistic expectation of God. It's not idealistic, the fact that God owns me. It's realistic, the fact that I now have to live up to his standards. As I daily make the choices, and I daily pray, and I daily get into the word of God, and that I, then, then I become more and more like Christ in every aspect of my life, the more I learn of him. So the choices of life that are pleasing to God require a choice to submit. Boy, it's a big word that our flesh doesn't like. That we are going to submit to God. Submission means that one comes under the ownership and authority of the one he submits to. Oh boy, this may be idealistic, isn't it? To think that I'm going to submit to, to I'm going to submit to give up my ownership. I'm going to give up my life. It goes against every natural tendency in the human flesh because a human nature doesn't want to submit to anybody besides myself. What seems so idealistic and contrary to man's proud flesh is the very thing that will enable them to live a realistic life of holiness and standing against the enemy. You know, we are prideful people. Pride is the original sin. Pride is the sin that cost Lucifer, who was the best angel created, the worship leader of heaven, pride rose up in his life. That pride caused rebellion, and because of that rebellion, God cast him from heaven because of the pride in Lucifer's life, and that pride becomes the pride of our life. So now I'm going to run my own life. I I have to slay that pride. I have to come under God's submission I have to lay that proudness on the sideline and say, no, it's not about me, God. It's not about how good I am. It's not about how good I can be. It's all about the blood of Jesus. And I'm going to submit under you. I'm going to come under your authority. I'm going to come under your lordship. And when I do, I come under his protection. I come under his blessing. I come under his authority in my life to give me um, victory over the enemy. Because the enemy doesn't care about me. The devil doesn't know who I am. I, let me back up. He knows who I am, but he doesn't listen to me. I don't, I'm no threat to the devil. You are no threat to the devil. You and your own life are no threat to the devil. But as soon as Jesus comes into your life, you have ability to conquer the devil because of Christ in you. But it only comes as we submit. James says it this way in James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. James says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? In other words, if you're a friend of the world, if you are buying into the world system, you are an enemy of God. 
Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Verse 6. But God gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Verse 7. This is the key. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Let me say that again. The key to defeating the enemy is, first of all, submitting yourselves to God. Come under God's authority. I submit myself then unto God, resist the devil, and now the devil has nothing, no choice but to flee because he can't stand against the power of God. He can stand against me. He can stand against you, against your power that you think you, or I think I have, But when I submit to God, the devil has no choice but to flee because he cannot stand in the presence of God. Come near to God, verse 8 says, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Don't lift yourself up by your pride. God opposes the proud. But when you humbly submit to God, Through your humbleness, God will lift you up. And that gives you joy, that gives you peace, that gives you hope for eternal life versus anything this world could offer. That's why we pray the prayers of the Bible, to help us move from the idealistic mindset of living a life pleasing to God on our own into a very realistic life of being filled with the fruit of righteousness to the glory and praise of our Lord God. Does that make sense? Man, I hope so, because this is really important. This has been a, this is a, a, this is an eye-opening message. This is a message that if we could really get into our hearts, it will change us. Jackie, would you come, please? All right, I want to go back to one of the first questions we asked at the beginning. At the end of your life, how do you want people to remember you? What do you want your legacy to be? Having a set goal to how you want to be, how you want to be remembered will help you make the right choices now, even if it's hard to do. And I know this may be idealistic at times. It may seem that way. But if you don't make those choices, I guarantee you'll never come close to being remembered the way you want to be. Let me get personal. This is my goal. When I die, and when my kids and my grandchildren gather on my funeral casket, I want them to say, Grandpa, my dad, love Jesus. I want that to be so obvious. That's all I care about. Yeah, I want to give them a nice life. Sure. I want to have all those nice memories of all the fun we had. But if they don't know that I love Jesus, then it's all worthless. I don't want them to wonder, boy, I wonder where Grandpa's at right now. I wonder if he's in heaven or not. I don't want that. I want them to know that I'm in heaven. And not only I'm in heaven, but I'm praying for them from heaven. 
because I will have every right that Jesus has because I am a joint heir with Christ and Jesus is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for the saints and I want to be next to Jesus in the throne room of heaven making intercession for my children from heaven. And I believe that's biblical. And I believe that's godly. And I believe my mom and my dad today are doing that for me right now. That they're at the right hand of the Father making intercession for me. That's what I want. So that's how I live a life. I don't care idealistic or realistic. I want to live a life that my kids know that I love Jesus more than anything else. Now listen, that doesn't mean I can live a perfect life. That means I'm not going to be a perfect dad. I'm going to make mistakes along the way. But the only way that they're going to know that I really love Jesus is because I was forgiven by him. And because I asked Jesus into my heart and they saw it and they know they knew it and they saw the fruit of it. And you know, there's a prayer that I want to read to you that I w- would ask you to go back and read over and over and over again. It's a long prayer. It's a prayer written by King David. David was a man after God's own heart, yet David was a very evil man in many times of his life. David committed adultery. David had Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, killed. So David was a murderer. David was a fornicator. David was a liar. David made lots of sins in his life. But because of this prayer that he reads right now in Psalms chapter 51, this is the prayer that I pray. It's the prayer that you need to pray every day. Make this your prayer. Just do this with me. Close your eyes. It's not going to be on the screen, so you're not going to be able to read it. I just want you to listen to the prayer of David. David says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. 
open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken heart, a broken spirit, and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Amen. That's the prayer that makes an unholy man a holy man. That's the prayer of forgiveness. Is that the prayer you want? Think about your life. Think about what you want your grandkids to think about you. And let me just say this. It's never too late to change. It's never too late to start. If you're at a point in life where you are not sure what your grandparents are gonna, or your grandkids are going to think of you, then make the choice. And then you need to tell them. You need to say, guess what, guys? I've changed my life. My ownership now is in Christ. And you need to make it very clear to them that you are now a believer in Jesus Christ. You may be listening online, and you may be wondering, how do I do that? Well, it's going to be a humbling process. You may have to humble yourself before your children and say, guys, I didn't live a righteous life when I was raising you. You need to forgive me. Would you please forgive me? I'm changed now. Jesus is my master. He's my Lord. Is that idealistic? Or is that realistic? Father, we just come to you now in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray, God, that you just make the words here that were maybe hard to hear, but God, make them meaningful in our lives and our hearts. And Lord, that we would pray the prayer with David and we would pray for a pure heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me. Let's sing the song that Jackie and Tom are playing. Father, that is our prayer today. Lord, that as we go to our homes, Lord, that we'll let this message settle in. And Lord, we'll take the idealistic and God will we'll turn it into realism. That yes, God, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that you can help me do that. So I pray, Father, right now in the name of Jesus, that you would just give us a sense of your peace, your authority, your love, your purpose, and your hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be blessed today. Have a great day.